Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from The Message. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing and how you can get involved, check out our website, message.org.uk. Well, this morning we're going to spend a few moments together thinking about this, this, this phrase, a passion for the word. And I felt the Lord lay on my heart this phrase, navigating through fear to faith, navigating through fear to faith. I wonder what you think of when you think of that phrase, though, a passion for the word. I'm taken back um, a few years ago now to a time when I was in China. A small group of us were on a mission trip. We'd gone to a province called Xinjiang province, which is in the northwest of China, where um, the Uyghurs live. You've probably seen them on the news. You know, they've been recently quite persecuted in China. They're often Muslims. And I'd had the opportunity with others to speak at the university there. And we were in the English department and students were practicing their English afterwards with us. So I had a group of about 25 um, Chinese and Uyghur students who were in my group afterwards. And we were just talking and they were asking questions. And there was one particular young woman there. And she seemed to be really drawn but really fearful and she didn't really say very much and um, it was one of those frustrating situations you know where you you're just longing for God to break through but it just nothing happens so afterwards we went back for our team debrief and we're sitting together and another member of the team had had his group of 20 people and he said oh I'm so encouraged he said the first question I got asked was by a Uyghur young man. And the Uyghur young man said this. He said, is it true that Jesus Christ is coming back again? And my friend said, well, why do you ask me that question? And the guy says, well, two imams from our village last year went to do the Hajj. They went to Mecca. And on the way, together, they saw a vision of a man dressed in white that they thought was Jesus. And he said, you need to get ready because I'm coming back soon. They came back to the village and they told us all this, but we don't know what it means. Can you explain it? So my friend had 45 minutes of English conversation class explaining who Jesus is, what it means that he's returning. Glorious revival broke out. Have you ever been in a team feedback situation where you think the good stories always happen to someone else, not to me? So it came to my turn to share what had happened in my group, which was very unremarkable, other than I sense maybe there was this possible one girl who might have been drawn but was too frightened to say anything. So that night we went for dinner with um, a a person who was working locally in that city. And he was there long term. We were just there short term. And at the end of this dinner, he slid over the table to me. It was all very covert two copies of John's gospel in the Uyghur language and he said Amy I feel the Holy Spirit is telling me to give you these two gospels so we were moving on the next day we weren't going to meet anyone else and I said to him you keep them knowing that the Bibles at that point were being smuggled into the country. It was really difficult to get hold of God's word. I thought, I'm not going to meet anyone. You know, this isn't, this isn't my time. And he, he slid them back and he said, no, God has spoken to me. You just need to take them. So I thought, okay, fine then, and took them. Took them back to where I was staying, put them on, my, uh, on the um, bedside table just there. 
And we were packing up to go the next morning. And the phone in our room rang, and I sort of answered it a bit nervously. And downstairs in the hotel lobby were two young women, one of whom was the girl who'd been in my group. She asked if she could come up with her friend into our room and talk. So I said, yeah, sure. So up she came. She said, last night I couldn't sleep. I had a dream. And in that dream, a man dressed in white appeared to me and told me various things. But he said, don't let those people leave the country without giving you the book of life. She said, I'm here and so is my friend. And there were two John's Gospels sitting there on the bedside table. I wonder what you think about God's Word. Sometimes maybe we think, oh, it's quite hard to read the Bible. It's a bit boring. You know, it's a bit, uh, it's, it, it's hard to build those habits to keep going with it. When I think of a passion for God's Word, I think of God's passion that his revealed word get into the hands of hungry people, people who are searching for him, people who need life, people who need freedom, people who need breakthrough in this world. But the truth is, isn't it, we might think about the Chinese revival or we might think about the revival that's happening in Iran at the moment, but we're living here in Britain and it doesn't feel like many people on our street having dreams about Jesus telling them to come and get the book of life from us. And the reality is that in our culture, an incredible self-orientation has begun to infect and take hold. Instead of people, if you like, thinking, I need God's word and I want to follow God's word and I've got a hunger for God's word. We're searching for self-realization, self-expression, self-centeredness. And it's a path to misery. This misery is afflicting the wealthy as well as those who have materially less. But Jesus' way, the way of Jesus cultivated in a passion for his word, following him, denying ourselves, trusting him is actually the path to abundant life, life in all its fullness. The glory of God shining from our every pore, a fundamental clarity about our orientation in life, about our purpose in life, about the flow of our lives, flowing from him, clear about him, loved by him. And if I'm honest, in my Christian life, I've lived with times of clarity about that, of passion and purpose and being on track. And I've lived at other times seduced by the offers of the pleasures of this world. But I know that that never ultimately satisfies. I wonder today if the Lord wants us to see him again with clarity. A friend of mine who's a pastor in Afghanistan was once attacked by a mob. They'd bought petrol with them to burn him in his car. And as he cried out to God and actually read God's word to this crowd, the Lord sent angels to disperse the crowd and to deliver him. 
on a trip into more heavy Taliban territory, this particular pastor has a ministry of confrontation, a, a confident ministry of preaching the gospel to some of the most hardened um, terrorist leaders of our day. And on a trip into, into Taliban territory to do this, he was with two colleagues and they'd gone to share the gospel. And their car was being chased by three Taliban vehicles. They were all armed. And this is what Daniel says in his own words. He says, I'm in the car and we're being chased by three cars, all with weapons. The river is on one side of, of us and across the river, there's a mountain and we're high up and we keep on driving until the road runs out. The Taliban are getting closer. And I say to the others, this is the last day of our lives, let's pray. And so I, I, I prayed, and as I opened my eyes, I saw Jesus in the river. And he called to me, Daniel, don't be afraid. I'm with you, I will hold you, come on. I asked my friends, I told them, the Lord, he's in the river. He will hold us, don't worry. And then the driver nodded and he drove the car off the ridge into the river. It was very high and the river is very deep. And then Daniel said, I saw many doves surrounding us in the car and we reached the other side of the river. The driver asked, what shall we do here? And I said, you can change gear. <laughs> They're very nonchalant about miracles, aren't they? We were praying, he said, and then we were on the other side. He said the Taliban reached the end of the road and they just looked and they saw with amazement they knew what had happened. I want to read a few words from the Gospels. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storehouse or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? And since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? He goes on, consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the, of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink, and don't worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows you need them. But seek his kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. And then Jesus says these words, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there also your heart will be. These are the words of Jesus I believe he wants us to hear this morning. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father 
has been pleased to give you the kingdom. We meet this Jesus, we encounter this Father in the Word. Living free in an age of anxiety, in an age where people are pursuing self-realization and materialism, means to live shaped by the Word of God, finding refuge in his presence through his Word. Until late 2020, I have to say that I hadn't personally really ever experienced prolonged or overwhelming anxiety. I'd experienced nerves and natural fears. I'd found myself in quite dangerous situations. Um, we ministered for, te- uh, for seven years in Peckham, where there was a lot of gang violence. My husband was often breaking up gang fights. And I remember experiencing some fear in that sort of situation. I found myself in quite contested ministry situations um, abroad and experienced some fear. I'd experienced dangerous situations, that fight or flight type of confrontation. But in late 2020, I went through a really traumatic experience. It was abusive and it was intense and it was systematic over a period of time. And it was compounded by other sort of lower level unkindness and hostility that sometimes we experience as Christian leaders or just in ministry and face at different points. But the cumulative effect, along with the wider impact of the context of the pandemic, was profound. And I needed to have trauma therapy, and I benefited hugely from um, the work of a Christian psychologist. But I found extraordinary comfort and deliverance in God's word. You see, I'd often lived my life rushing from one thing to next, one event to the next, sort the children out, do this at whatever needs to be done at church, meet that person for coffee, living at a fast pace, grabbing bits of the word of God as I went along, relying on the reservoir of Bible reading over a long period of my life, but, but not eating, not drawing deeply on God's word. But at this moment of crisis in my life, I found I deeply and profoundly needed to find God in his word. And we live in an age of anxiety today. His word, his truth, the foundation of confidence in the Christian life is more needed now than ever. Kafka, the the writer, uh, describes anxiety in this way. He said, it's the feeling of having in the middle of my body a ball of wool that quickly winds itself up. It's innumerable threads pulling from the surface of my body to itself. The Guardian says we're in a grip of an anxiety epidemic that predates Trump's presidency and the pandemic. Indeed, we've become so collectively consternated, says the Guardian, that a 2016 analysis led by the World Health Organization estimated that without more treatment, 12 billion working days will be lost because of anxiety each year. 
And the study estimated the cost to the global economy up to 2030 as being 925 billion US dollars. The author, Seth Godin, describes anxiety as experiencing failure in advance. When you're worried, you're anxious, you're experiencing all the feelings of something bad that has not yet happened. One study showed that 85% of things we worry about never happen. And of the other 15%, four of five people said they either handled it or it taught them a valuable lesson. So we might be able to rationalize. We might be able to read things that tell us, oh, don't worry. But we're living in this heightened sense of anxiety all around us. And studies say that anxiety spreads and travels. When you see someone yawn, for example, mirror neurons activate and they make you yawn in return. Probably me even talking about yawning right now makes you want to yawn. Your brain picks up that fatigue response of someone else on the other side of the room. But studies say it isn't just smiles and yawns that spread. We can also pick up negativity, stress, anxiety and uncertainty. Researchers at the University of California found that if someone in your visual field is anxious and highly expressive, either verbally or non-verbally, there's a high likelihood that you will experience those emotions as well. Fear and anxiety are all around us. And Jesus speaks directly. He says, do not be afraid, little flock. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. You see, sometimes God's word is so powerful that it can actually shatter through and break through the impact of the wider cultural moment we live in the impact of the distressing circumstances of our lives. And it can do that in a tangible and personal way. That's what God's word is. The Bible speaks of itself as a sword. The Bible speaks of itself as living and active. The word of God as something very, very powerful and real in our lived experience. We live in an anxious generation. The story is told of a woman who was really, really worried about being burgled. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience of having a break-in when you're in the house. I've actually had that twice in my life. And it does make you a bit more nervous about the sounds, the creaks, the, the kind of weird things that happen at night. So this particular woman was very worried about this and it drove her husband mad. But one night she woke up and she heard that sound again and she gave him the old sort of dig in the ribs and made him go and investigate what was happening. And he went downstairs, and when he came into his kitchen, he actually encountered the burglar. And the burglar was rather surprised when the man said to him, oh, I'm so delighted you're here. My wife's been waiting 20 years to meet you. <laughs> we, we can live with this, with this anxiety. And there's a difference between anxiety as personal or a clinical mental health disorder suffered by a minority of individuals in every society and the systemic anxiety that scholars like Friedman and others describe as descriptive of our cultural moment in this contemporary world. Friedman argues that anxiety has become a dominant factor 
of the modern world. He describes America, that's his situation, but I think we see it here in Britain, as awash with worry. He says, anxiety is so deep within the emotional processes of the nation that it is almost as though neurosis has become nationalized. Anxiety spreads through the networks of human relationships. And in the West, in our culture, the institutions that have played a role in absorbing the collective anxiety of people, systems like our healthcare system, systems like our justice system, or our political system, all of those institutions that have been designed to absorb the collective anxiety of a, cult, of a culture have all been shaken profoundly in the last five years. And our confidence in their ability to save us, to help us, to deliver us from fear and anxiety has been profoundly undermined. So the health service, the justice system, and the political system no longer absorb our systemic national anxiety. And that is partly why we feel the levels of stress and worry that we do at such a pervasive level. What does Jesus say to people of the word in this cultural moment? What would it look like to live counterculturally in an age of anxiety? This is what Jesus says. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And this phrase comes in the midst of his teaching and parables about provision and about worry. He says, consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storehouse or barn, but God feeds them. Or consider the flowers. Jesus is addressing us, his followers, and encouraging us as a way to resist anxiety to live in freedom from materialism and consumerism. He's saying, don't worry about those physical things. And then he says, don't worry about your life. In other words, Jesus is saying that if you are with him, if you are following him, you will be safe. Your life, you will live your life in his purpose. He says, don't worry about what to eat whether there's going to be enough, not just today, but also tomorrow and next year, speaking to our fear of scarcity. He says, don't worry about your body. Your body will be okay. And I think that goes from everything from the breadth of, you know, am I thin enough? Do I need to lose enough weight? Am I muscly enough? Do I need to go to the gym? Am I attractive enough? All the way across to, will I have a heart attack or might I die from cancer? All those worries that we live with, Jesus is saying, the kingdom and following me means you can trust me with your body. Jesus names so much of what this world frets over, so much. And he says that setting our hearts on those things, material things, worrying about those things just leads to more anxiety. Your father knows you need them, he says. So seek the kingdom, and these things will also be given to you. The way of Jesus, steeped in his word, is to choose to live with a posture of trust 
in the goodness and provision of God, shaped by his word, shaped by his truth, shaped by his narrative, and not by the culture of anxiety around us. Don't be afraid, little flock. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. There's so much tenderness in God's word. I wonder if some of us here have grown up when we hear there's going to be a talk about the Bible, we just get ready, we kind of flinch with guilt that we haven't had our quiet time regularly enough. We haven't read the Bible regularly enough. This phrase, little flock, is a phrase of extraordinary affection and tenderness towards us in our vulnerability. It's the way a father or mother speaks to a beloved child. And Jesus is saying, the father has joy in giving to you. Now, our nearest and dearest might have affectionate names for us that convey intimacy and connection. Jesus is saying, you are beloved. You are included. Maybe you didn't experience that from your own parents. My husband, over the last five years, has been coming to terms with the abuse he experienced from his mother, violence as a baby and a toddler, when he should have been safe, and the ensuing CPTSD. Our parents may fail us. Even our experiences of close relationships may devastate us. But Jesus calls you little flock. You find in his word an invitation to intimacy and tenderness that he has with the Father. And he says the result of experiencing being his little flock is that we won't be afraid. Fear begins to go. Little flock is an expression of attachment. Dan Roberts, the psychotherapist, psychotherapist says, human beings are, are wired for connection. It's in our DNA. It's as strong a need as food and water and warmth. And if you look at a newborn baby, that makes sense. Unless babies successfully attached to their mother, they won't be able to survive a loving, secure relationship is a matter of life and death for babies. And so in our brains is an attachment system which gives us a magnetic attraction to others. We've been made for attachment, we're made for relationship. And the way of Jesus is to be attached, to be close to him and to the Father, and to know the Father in such a deep and profound way that we experience him as utterly pleased with us, utterly delighted in us, utterly thrilled to give us the kingdom. And what that feels like is to be free from anxiety, to be free from fear. Little flock is a description of size. Jesus speaks to the disciples not to be on the back foot when they feel small or insignificant. What a contrast with the great the bigger is always better way of seeing the world. Success impresses. Jesus is reversing it. He's saying, when you're small, when you're insignificant, you're precious. The little flock matters greatly to him. Little flock is a description of power. 
we may be little in our sense of, of our ability to influence things. And that might make us susceptible to fear. We might feel unimpressive and irrelevant. But the gospel, the kingdom, is a beautiful resistance movement, small in number, great in impact, resisting the impetus to worry about clothes and food and drink and consumption, living for a different kingdom, resisting the power of mass consumption, resisting the mentality of owning and acquiring more, reveling in being the little flock, and so living without fear, and bringing down the idols and the powerful structures of our age. Little flock is a description of confidence. Jesus is saying, you don't need to be afraid. You can be confident in me because I see you. I'm gonna provide for you. You know, in the Christian life, we're going to experience this in different ways. I experienced this really, really powerfully um, in my teens or late, early 20s. I'd been in a, 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 a mission taking Bibles into the military headquarters of the Taliban. It's, a, it's an exciting story where we got to meet the top brass of that movement and share the gospel and give them Bibles. And the religion minister of that movement had been praying for years that he could have a Bible and we'd gone as a result of a dream. It was a, it was a real God thing. God did amazing things. But on our way out, on our journey home, there were three of us on this team and we needed to, we were crossing over. You couldn't fly into Afghanistan because of the war and there was still a lot of fighting. It was too dangerous. So we'd crossed a land border with Turkmenistan and it was a long journey. And it was going to be like a 20-hour train or 18-hour train ride back to the capital city of Turkmenistan and then um, a, a long walk as well and a bit of a car journey. And when we got to the border, the Turkmen guards refused to let us through. They wanted a bribe. And there were just three of us. And we only had $50 left between us. We were very irresponsible young people. We had half a bottle of water and a sandstorm began. And they kept us in this no man's land, which has mines on either side, for hours. And a sandstorm is very frightening. You know, it's the middle of the afternoon, you're in the desert, but it's so dark that you can't see your hand in front of your face. We were all really afraid. So my husband, my now husband, who was then my boyfriend, says, okay, Amy, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to hold my British passport up to the Turkmen border guards and I'm going to say... It's my international right to speak to the British consul. Please, can I use the phone? And if that doesn't work, you cry. So I thought, okay, I can definitely manage that. So he went and said that, and um, the guy just, just did this. He, he wanted the money, which we didn't have, so I cried. And that didn't work either. So scroll forward 24 hours. We're in an absolutely desperate situation. God sends... Uh, a, Another way of deliverance, I haven't got time to tell you, but we're back at the border 24 hours later. They let us through, but there's now no train. It's a two-kilometer walk to the train station. There's no train for another three days. We're going to miss our flight. But we're through. We're out of Afghanistan. So we're standing in the middle of nowhere. There's mountains around. There's just this metal gate in the middle of the desert that we've come through, and a car drives up. And in this car 
it's one of those very old Soviet cars, and the, the woman in the passenger seat opens the window and says to us in English, can I help you? So we get our map out, and we've, we've got our Lonely Planet guide, and we've realized there's a bus station about 14 hours drive north. And so we point to the city, and we say, can you drive us here? And then we get our $50 note out and say, we'll pay you this. So she nods, and we get into the back of the car, tiny car, two six-foot men and me with our rucksacks. So we begin, they give us food, because we haven't eaten for quite a long time, which was very memorable, and they begin to drive us. From this point on, they can't speak any more English. So they drive us for 14 hours, and we begin to worship, and we sing a, a song that was popular at the time, Great is the darkness that covers the earth, and there's this chorus, Come, Lord Jesus, pour out your spirit, we pray. And as we sing that, the Holy Spirit fills the car so that everything turned yellow. The glory of God filled the car in the most amazing way. And this couple just said, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And they were weeping, and we were weeping, and we carried on singing. So we get out of the car 14 hours later at the bus station, and we're kind of unfurling ourselves a bit and putting the rucksacks back on, and we turn around to give them the $50. And they and the car have disappeared. Don't be afraid, little flock, says Jesus. Your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Your father knows what you need. We so rarely live with material desperation and dependence on God that perhaps we don't get to experience that level of miracle all the time. But that is the God of the Bible. That's the God of the Word. And I want to encourage you today that as we set out, you've done 30 years, Message Trust, amazing 30 years that I genuinely believe have shaken and shaped the gospel message in our cultural moment. As you look forward to the next 30, 50, 100 years, let's be those who defy the age of anxiety, who live in a passion for the word, who are empowered by the spirit of God, to live against the spirit of this age, which worries about what we're going to have, what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, what we're going to do, worries about our lives, consumed with self, consumed with worry and anxiety. Let's live in defiance to that spirit of the age, shaped by the word of God, the father who says, don't worry, little flock. Your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Let's see the kingdom advance in our age of anxiety. Amen. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support our work or even get involved with one of our teams. We also have another podcast called The Flow Podcast, where we share stories and testimonies of the amazing things that God's doing in people's lives. Search for The Flow Podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>